Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 182. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, we uh, come together once again tonight asking for your Holy Spirit to open the text to us, to reveal the truths of your word so that we can um, understand and walk away with an application. Um, help us in our weakness. Uh, there's so many things that we don't understand, and we d- we don't expect that you're going to explain all of them in one setting, but we know that you are trustable and reliable, and so we'll continue to press in and make ourselves available uh, as you continue to um, open the text to us. Um, give us a heart to do your will and continue to um, uh, bless us and protect us and raise us up. Oh, and thank you, Lord, just uh, as a side note, thank you, Lord, for the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Uh, that's historic, and I know it's something that many, many, many Christians around the world have been praying for, particularly those in the United States, and uh, we see it as a victory. Uh, it's a one step, and it means there's a lot of work to go. Uh, but Lord, thank you for those um, accomplishments and for uh, uh, what it represents. So um, we uh, thank you, Lord, that you are uh, you've demonstrated that you're still in control and that you still answer prayer. We'll just continue to look for you, look to you to continue to lead us and guide us in this great nation with, that we call America. We'll give you the praise and the glory, B'shem Yeshua, Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. This is a study on Matthew nine fourteen through seventeen. In roughly entitled Judaism v. Christianity, or the long title is, Are Judaism and Christianity Incompatible with One Another? And we're having discussions about this idea of if the theology that Jesus brought to um, the people in the first century of that day, was it so brand new, so radically different than what was already being circulated and taught, so as to um, displace the existing theology of the day, the existing practices of the day. Um, So most of you are familiar with this idea of replacement theology or supersessionism. It's this concept of the church has replaced Israel as a people group. Uh, Scripture-wise, the um, New Testament has replaced the Old Testament, or theologically we could say the law of Christ has displaced the law of Moses. Um, However you want to... um, uh, term it or describe it, it all kind of amounts to the same idea that there was a a, a changing of the guards, right? The old is out, the new is in, etc., etc. And a lot of this discussion is is centered on other passages that we find in the New Testament, right? You're not really going to find the Old Testament saying, behold, the days are coming when I'm going to swap out people groups, right? I'm going to switch uh, everything up and I'm going to discard the old and, and start something fresh. But you will find verses here and there in the New Testament that seem to give lend support to this idea that this new idea is taking hold. And one of the places that we find this uh, is here in Matthew, this uh, example that we're going to read. So let me read this, um, uh, the, the passage in question. I've been kind of reading it every time just to get us uh, started. Matthew 9, starting at verse 14, this is ESV that you see in front of you on your screen. And uh, then the disciples of John came to him, speaking to him, here is Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now listen to Jesus' answer. Listen to Yeshua's words. Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. Now, that's one part of three 
anecdotal or um uh what do we say uh parabol parabolic um stories that he weaves together S uh, some see them as disconnected some see them as, as all lumped together i'm not sure either way to be honest with you it can go either way as far as i can tell um but there's the uh detail about the fasting that's one of three and then the next one starts in verse 15 um started 16 no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made so that's the second one is that verse 16 and then the third one in verse 17 and and uh that's the conclusion neither is new wine put into old wine skins if it is the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed but new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both both are preserved and that's the end of the um section and then he moves on talks about other things and what we talked about last week is in challenge to this idea of um, replacement theology where it's kind of just um, standard song and dance in historic Christianity up to this point now, meaning I say up to this point, meaning up to this modern view of Christianity. When this idea of replacement theology first took hold in the church, I can't say for certain. I think it started circulating as early as um, the late first century with Marcion. The, the, he was a, a church heretic. heretic who um, uh, was uh, fond of championing the idea that the Old Testament and the Old Testament God was not trustable because of its harsh um, treatment and, sh and, and display of God, and thus uh, the New Testament, uh, the, the Bible that we Christians carry should be expunged of anything that has Old Testament and things like that. So, I mean, it's very early in Christian history you know, if we're, if we're saying Christian meaning uh, first century and, and and later, that this idea that something new has hit the scene, it's just kind of um, almost unquestioned in today's dialogue and um, and narratives. If you have a, a conversation with a Christian pastor, a seminarian, someone who's uh, a Bible student um, or leads Bible studies or anything like that even your garden variety christian it's just kind of common knowledge i'm using the word knowledge with air quotes with my fingers it's just kind of common understanding that obviously the old testament got replaced by the new testament the law of moses got replaced by or displaced and replaced by the law of christ and the church took up the mantle of being the new people of good people of god because the jews failed failed god um so miserably etc 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 so um but if we stop and again ask ourselves is this rooted is this dialogue rooted in what Yeshua is saying here well if we last week as i mentioned skipping the part about the 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 um the fasting the wedding uh, brood bridegroom and the bride and all that stuff skipping that part of the story if you just start in verse 16 and look at those details and corroborate this story against the other two places that they're found in the in the gospels it doesn't seem to be that Yeshua is is replacing the cloth the garment or replacing the um the wine and the wineskins he's the language here doesn't permit that and yet this is the common interpretation that we walk away with in modern christian um commentaries and, and sermons and things like that so let's look at this that's what we've been doing and we've been using different resources in my commentary here that's available on my website at tatesaytorah.com um, and we, we used uh, resources from gotquestions.org, we used uh, Pastor John MacArthur, we used Pastor John Piper, and now we're looking at Pastor David Guzik. All of these gentlemen, as I keep stressing, highly respected, and they're well-trusted, and they're good resources. 
if there's one thing I want you to walk away with, is that these resources come highly recommended. All right? As someone who's been um, leading Bible studies for 20 years, 25 years or so myself, um, I can't recommend these resources enough, right? Pastor Piper, Pastor MacArthur, Pastor Guzik, got questions. Those are just a smattering, right? I mean, a very small handful. But they're all trustable, they're all reliable, and they're all basically free, right? That's the, the big uh, green light for me is, you know, when you have no budget. I don't even, I'm not even, I'm not even rich enough to afford a, a shoestring budget, right? I'm so poor I can't even afford a shoestring. Um, so when you're that poor, having internet resource like these available free for free on the internet is just a bonus, right? It's a gift. It's a blessing. So um, that's one of the reasons why I make these available. So people can go back and fact check me. They can go back and read on their own and say, Ariel, I read this and I didn't see it the way you saw it. And here's why I disagree. Hey, I'm fine with that. Maybe I missed something. Maybe I'm blindsided. Let's look at this. Let's pick up my commentary again. It's where we left off last week with Pastor David Guzik, where he's talking about the wineskins. Let's just um, uh, pick that up again uh, and start there. So these are Pastor David Guzik's words. Uh, quote, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved, right? So he's going to comment on Yeshua's terminology. These are uh, Pastor Guzik's words. Jesus' reference to the wineskins was his announcement that the present institution of Judaism, you ready for it? Listen very carefully. The present institutions of Judaism could not and would not contain his new wine. He would form a new institution called the church that would bring Jew up a bit. Um, he would form a new institution uh, called the church that would bring Jew and Gentile together into a completely new body. And he's referencing Ephesians 2.16. So in Pastor David Guzik's understanding of this parable or sto anecdotal story of Yeshua, the understanding is that Yeshua is bringing something new without saying it that way, right? I mean, obviously, we're reading into Yeshua's words because he didn't. Yeshua doesn't say out of his mouth, right? He doesn't say, "Behold, thus saith the Son of Man," or you know, uh, you know, "Verily, verily, I say unto you," or something like that. He doesn't say, "I'm starting something new." Judaism, you're out. Christianity, you're in. Right? That would really be inconvenient if Jesus did say that, because then it would be unmistakable that that's what he meant. But based on the parable of you know the new new wine and the wineskins and things like that. Um, the interpretation is brought forth by modern Christian authors, which is kind of um, um, built upon author after author after author who've just kind of assumed that this is what must be Yeshua, this is what me, uh, this must be what Yeshua meant about um, old wine, new wine. He must be talking about Judaism is out and Christianity is new, right? It's in and things like that. So let's keep reading. Um, this is uh, Pastor Guzik as well. Again, he, he, these are his words. It's available in his commentary, which I'll show you the link for later. Um, Jesus reminds us that what is old and stagnant often cannot be renewed or reformed. Now, again, in concept, I, I, I agree with what Pastor Guzik is trying to put forth, right? Practical, common sense um, application kind of works here, but... As we looked at it, um, and we don't have the time to do it now, maybe I will do it later on in my commentary. I can't remember if I did or not. Um, but uh, the new wine that's put into fresh wineskins, uh, the Greek word here for fresh, I said last week it was, uh, I incorrectly said it was um, uh, um, uh, koinao or something like that. But it's, um, let me just show it to you. Let's just do it right now. Matthew 9, 17 in the Greek. Uh, new wines is um, 
uh, fresh wineskins is let me find it new is neon you see right here sorry didn't do that like that uh new is neon and wine is oinon and ace is into and then new for wineskins is the uh, greek word um kainus uh which was rooted in the word kainos and the strong's number 2537 defines it as fresh new unused novel of uncertainty affinity new and then wineskins is uh, askus so the point that i was highlighting last week and i'll continue to use this as a reference point is that yeshua doesn't say that new wine is put into new wineskins he doesn't use the word new in the greek twice like we do in our english new wineskins in fact the the um the esv puts it as new wine is put into fresh wineskins because it realizes there's a different greek word there instead of new and new some translations say new and new but other translations are more a little a little more uh, careful in their translation they put a different word um, and the, the Greek word uh, kainus can uh, bring in a nuance of something new chronologically or new qualitatively. And so we're going to opt for qualitatively is the, probably the better one. Naos, its counterpart adjective is more chronologically new, like as in never existed before. But the word, its, it's um, counterpart uh, kainus or kainos, uh, the root word, it doesn't have to be chronologically new. It can be more qualitatively new. So example, um, I've got this old watch. It stopped working and it's pretty dirty, but it's valuable to me, right? It's an heirloom that was passed along in my family. What do I do? Do I throw it out and buy a new watch? If I do, well, then the word new here in my example would be a Naos watch. It's a brand new watch. Never existed before in my family. I replaced the old one with a brand new one. This would be the best use of the Greek word naos in my little example. However, if instead of buying a brand new watch, replace the old one, what say I took the old watch down to the watch shop and had the guy work on that watch? He tore it apart, he cleaned it, and he got it working again and gave it back to me. Question Is it a new watch? No. It's the same old watch that I've had in my family all along. But what's new? It's new qualitatively. In this example, I should use the Greek phrase kainos. Okay, it's a kainos watch. It is a refurbished watch, a refreshed. It's new, but only new in the sense that it's been repaired, um, right? It's been repaired, it's been refurbished been cleaned up and it's been brought back to working condition but it's not brand new chronologically anymore it's the same old watch that i took in before he cleaned it so that's what i'm trying to bring up is that the new word here in yeshua's example is not what we would think of chronologically new it is qualitatively new it's the same old thing but it's been refreshed refurbished um reinvigorated brought back from the dead if you will okay so um so that's what we're talking about when we say that uh it's uh, this new wineskin it's a fresh wineskin meaning it's the same wineskin but it's been reconditioned so that it can handle the new wine so that it can um withstand the stretching right it's been been reworked it doesn't necessarily have to imply that you tossed the old one and brought in a, a chronologically new one otherwise it would say but new wine is put into new wineskins and the word new there would be the greek word naos in both cases but that's not the case so there seems to even be a grammatical clue that yeshua isn't saying that the wineskin has to be um thrown out um instead if we can just work with the so what are the what are the theological implications well if he's talking about judaism here means we don't have to throw out Judaism. 
We can simply take it into the shop and have it refurbished, have it reworked, have it repaired by the master. In other words, it's not irreparable. It doesn't need to be discarded. Yeshua's truth can be incorporated into Judaism so long as we rework the system, but we can still call it Judaism. That's my point. All right, so let's go back to, um, oops, let's go back to Pastor Guzik. Jesus reminds us of what is old and stagnant often cannot be renewed or reformed. He continues, God will often look for new vessels to contain his new work until those vessels eventually make themselves unusable. So, uh, again, don't misunderstand Pastor Guzikir. G- generically speaking, and this is something that someone wrote into me when I said this in my, in my uh, YouTube video, they wrote, they wrote in the comment section, wow, I'd never heard it that way. Thank you for explaining it to me. My understanding of the Judaisms of, of Yeshua's day was that the, um, the religious system had built a, um, a tradition that was on top of the biblical data, an example that God had laid down through the mouth of Moshe and the, and the prophets and things like that. So that by Yeshua's day, we had what, if you look at it like layers, at the very bottom layer, we had God's word, right? We had the foundational Torah and the Tanakh, right? The prophets, writings. So we had that as our foundation, but built on top of that, we had traditions, and then we had fences, and we had halakha. This is not in any particular order, but except for the foundation part, that's the bottom. It doesn't go any lower than that. But the point I'm trying to bring up in helping you to see this is that by Yeshua's day, man's understanding of God's word had created a religion on top of God's word that clouded the issue so much that it was very difficult to see the pure truth of God's word anymore. Man's traditions, man's interpretations, and the fences, and the halacha, and all of the, um, you know, the sayings of the rabbis, and sayings and quotes after each other, uh, what later become, came known as Talmud and, and Mishnah and Gemara and things like that, all of that had um, really polluted uh, the, tr- the, the pure word of God so that people couldn't even really understand what God was trying to say. And so when, by the time when Yeshua hit the scene, we had so many misunderstandings that Yeshua had to cut through all of that, right? He cut back to the pure understanding, the pure milk of the word. He came to restore God's truth to its proper standing in Jewish circles. And so, to that, for that regard, we can say that there is a discarding, right? The trash had to be cleaned out. You have to th- I mean, if you wash a dirty baby, sooner or later you have to throw out the bath water because the water is collecting all the dirt off the baby. So yeah, you got to throw out the bathwater. But what we don't want to do, you guys know where I'm going with this example, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So that's my challenge to modern Christian authors today who try to explain that Jesus came to do some house cleaning and he had to throw off that dirty baby along with the dirty water, the baby being Judaism. But I say, no, he didn't. Have, it wasn't necessary to do that. He didn't have to do that. All right, but Pastor Guzik isn't explaining it that way. Again, if we have a straw man version of judaism that that is equated with merit theology then yeah we need to throw that out but we don't need to throw out the the true torah the truth of god's words because why there's nothing wrong with god's words why would they need to be replaced if the law of moses had no error and was not at fault why would it have to be replaced by a new law known as the law of christ if the old testament i don't like that terminology but since it's so popular i'm going to borrow it just for a moment if the old testament was without flaw 
then why would would it need to be replaced by a New Testament? What was so wrong with the Old Testament? Last time I checked, when I read through the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, which is quoted by the writer to the book of Hebrews in chapter 8 and chapter 10, God says, finding fault with them, speaking of the people and their priests, finding fault with them, God says, behold, the days that are coming when I'll bring a new, when I'll issue um, a new covenant, right? A brit chadasha in the Hebrew, a kainas diatheke in the Greek. When I will issue this new covenant, finding fault with them, not finding fault with it. So the subject, the topic for discussion isn't God's law that needed to be replaced. It's the people and their errant theology and, and their their uh, traditions built on top of God's law and their, their halakha and their group policies and their, their fences and all these things that had... Um, created calluses around the word of god so that you couldn't even really understand what the bible said anymore because all the rabbis misinterpretations and misrepresentations had be, it kind of rose to the forefront right what does what does the bible say well let me tell you what rashi says i don't want to hear what rashi says i don't want to hear what rambam says i want to know what god's word says right but we don't hear that anymore in judaism we and on and on it goes all right so i'm rambling too much let me keep reading um, Pastor Guzik says, this reminds us that the religious establishment of any age is not necessarily pleasing to Jesus. Sometimes it is in direct opposition to, or at least resisting his work. And again, if we were talking about any other comparative religion, I might really follow along with Pastor Guzik's logic here. For instance, if it was, say, if Jesus uh, came into a world of um, Islam and brought truth or if we were to do this today if i were to go into the culture of islam and bring the truth of the bible there's probably a lot that i need to throw out you know because the quran is not compatible with the truths of the bible much to to the shock and surprise of people who think that they are but they're not the same is true of many other comparative religions like buddhism is not compatible compatible with christianity um, modern, uh, even Christian sects like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Latter-day Saints theology, um, those aren't compatible with genuine biblical truths. Um, you know, uh, Confucianism and, and, and Harry Krishna theology and some of these other comparative religions around the world. Um, you know, Voodism, is, is that how it, Voodooism? Voodism? I don't know how you say it, but it's not compatible with the Word of God. So, a, a good section of that would have to be discarded if i were to bring the biblical truth to those people groups um and expect any type of real change to take place so you guys kind of following along with me but the point is in the first century how bankrupt was judaism yeah they had some big problems i mean go back and read matthew 23 woe unto you scribes and pharisees hypocrites right jesus just lays the axe at the tree at the root of the tree like john said it was already there um, you know, wow, and you know, I leave your house to you desolate. You're not going to see me again until you cry out, you know, Brucha Baba Shema Donai, blessed who comes in the name of the Lord. So Yeshua had some harsh words to say to the leaders, but how about the word of God itself? Was that corrupt? Did Jesus have to replace that? Old is out, new is in. Talk about testaments. All right, let's keep reading. Um, let's see how much time I got. Uh, about five more minutes. Let's keep reading Pastor Guzik. I think I can finish um, this quote from him. He writes, quote, Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old. Ah, why not? Why couldn't he patch it up? What was so foul about a Messianic Jew that uh, it had to be replaced with a Gentile Christian? Understand my challenge there? Even in today's Christian dialogues, 
many Christians can't envision Messianic Judaism. I visit churches when I was in America. I visit churches and I wear my kippah, I wear my talit, you know, I wear my Jewish looking garb. And I show up and I sit in the pews and people look at me and their eyes are really wide like saucers and they're blinking and some, someone work up the nerve and they walk up to me and ask me, and you know, hi, welcome to our church. Who are you and what is all this about? They've never met such a creature, right? Um, a Jew who believes in Jesus? How quaint. <laughs> but, but stop, 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 wait a minute. In the first century, it wasn't quaint to, be to meet a Jew who believed in Jesus. What was quaint or odd or quirky was to meet a non-Jew who believed in Jesus. Understand what I'm saying here? So we, we got this thing all kind of flip-flopped and backwards by today's standards. You know, Messianic Judaism, that's a weird creature. No, actually that was the norm in Jesus' day. It's Gentiles that would have been the weird creatures, right? Gentile Christians, all right? So let's just go back into context. Pastor Guzik continues. Oh, sorry about that, guys. I hope that didn't go into your ears. Pastor Guzik continues, This is what salvation is all about. In doing this, Jesus doesn't destroy the old law. Now, I like that. Give him that credit. Jesus doesn't destroy the old law, but he fulfills it. <laughs> Which is basically the same as saying that he moved it out of the way. He didn't destroy it, but he put it on the shelf. He put it on, he put it on the back burner and turned off the stove. Right? The water's not boiling anymore. It's 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 um it's a discontinued project right it's shelved it's been mothballed uh we threw the cloth over it and it's sitting in that big giant warehouse where the ark of the covenant is also resting um things like that that's um that's kind of the idea of christianity's view of judaism right when they say he fulfills it just as an acorn is fulfilled when it grows into an oak tree ah but last time i checked the seed does get destroyed right it gets gets replaced by the um uh the 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 tree itself i i don't even think you could probably find the original acorn it's is it in the ground there somewhere i mean are there remnants of that husk who knows but i'm I, in other words I'm, I'm not following along with this example it's unfortunate the word fulfill there is not supposed to mean replaced or done away with but in modern christian mindset and the historical mindset that was kind of carried along through the centuries and i'm closing with this uh, replacement, I'm sorry, fulfillment does in fact basically mean the same thing as replaced and done away with. He can he he uh, uh, closes by saying there's a sense in which the acorn is gone, but its purpose is fulfilled in greatness. And uh, he put the emphasis in all of those places there, the the paragraphs and stuff. I didn't do that. All right, so that's that's um, that'll do it for Pastor David Guzik. If I click on the um, footnote number eight there, you can see that I pulled his resource from um, www.enduringword.com. Um, I do recommend that you uh, go check out his, his, his commentaries. They're highly, um, highly respected. They're reliable. Um, for the most part, on the foundational parts of the Bible, they, they, they hit the nail on the head. He's not sensational, right? He doesn't, he's not out to just um, sell books. If he was, he wouldn't be giving this stuff away for free. So um, I bless him. And for his work, it's invaluable. So uh, I continue to use his commentaries whenever I need to look something up. But when it comes to this very difficult topic of explaining first century Judaism and how how the, the Torah still fits in our lives, 
modern historical Christianity is always going to wrestle with this idea. What do we do with Israel? What do we do with Messianic Judaism? What do we do with the law of Moses now that the New Testament is a part of our canon? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? So there's where you're always going to find some challenges in modern Christian authorship when it comes to the law of Moses, um, understanding the Apostle Paul, uh, Messianic Judaism, things like that. So for those special cases, it might be necessary, like I'm going to do in my commentary eventually, to jump into Christian authors who've already come Come to a better understanding of the law of Moses and Judaism and things like that. But that'll do it now for Judaism v. Christianity, or Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a tour teacher to your congregation, Kayla Tunvada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and pick up our study where we left off last week. We're now ready to begin looking at and revisiting these passages on the Holy Spirit that, were, um, that, we sh that showed up in paper two. <clears throat> Remember, there was this table you can see my screen right now. There was this table that CARM, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, um, uh, led by Matt Slick, that they had created. And so this is the same table that shows up in paper two uh, of this commentary. If you want to scroll up and see it, you can uh, see the full table. But the full table had Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
and I simply lifted the columns that have the Holy Spirit and reproduced them here in this part of my commentary. So let's begin to look at some of these passages. But before we do, let me read through all of the um, titles and the references uh, right now uh, beforehand so we can know kind of in advance where we're going to be going. So we've got this column called Holy Spirit, and uh, we've got this um, title over on the left side that says that the Holy Spirit is called God, and the reference is Acts 5, 3 through 4, and I'm going to bring in also verse 9, I believe, when we look at that tonight. But uh, after that, we've got this um, next one where God is called, I'm sorry, where the Holy Spirit is called Creator, and uh, the, the reference is Job 33, verse 4, as well as 26, verse 13. We'll look at that probably tonight. Um, the next one on the list is that the Holy Spirit actually has the ability to resurrect. And again, keep in mind that this is a chart that's put together to show us the overlapping qualities and character traits and interworkings among humans, right? The, the interaction with, with human history that God does using the various persons, right? So we've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons one essence known as god one usia of god but three persons as represented by father son holy spirit and so it is a dance between the ontological nature of god which is kind of a question that deals with how god is put together and made up and how his parts are um to be understood as working together that's what we say ontological like the ingredients so if god were were a dish what are the ingredients that that he's made up of that's what i mean by ontological and so it's a, a dance between the ontological uh, trinity and the economic trinity when we say economic we're talking about um functions and roles that we can witness among humans and this is where the three persons comes in um god the father does things in history God the Son does things in history, and the Holy Spirit does things, and um, they're, they're all three God, and yet they are separate in some of these roles, and yet we can sense the overlap the way Scripture uh, describes the events and activities that take place, so that we realize we're dealing with one being, but yet we have three separate persons uh, interacting with one another uh, I mean, it's it's a mystery. All right. So when we say resurrects, okay, we we obviously know that there are passages where God the Father is describing as described as the one who resurrects Yeshua from the dead, and yet we also have passages where Jesus says, "No one takes my life; I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the power to take it back up again. I have this authority from my Father." So Jesus raised himself from the dead. But then now we, we're going to look in Romans eight eleven and following how that. Paul says that it's the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, right? The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. So that's why we're looking at these uh, lists, right? This is a way of knowing that we're dealing with one being known as God and yet three persons. The next one on the list will be that the Holy Spirit indwells. And this is, again, significant because there are numerous passages that talk about that God is the one who dwells in us. And then there are other passages that talk about Jesus is the one who takes up residency inside of us, right? The Lord dwells in us, right? We invite Jesus into your heart when you get saved. And yet it's the Holy Spirit that dwells as well. Well, okay, wait a minute. Is it who, who's, who's there inside of me, right? Is it God? I, I'm sorry, it's the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. All right, that's the point. Um, the next uh, label that we'll look at or, or description is that the Holy Spirit is everywhere. He's, omnip he's omnipresent. 
Meaning, we're looking at qualities that are known to be God's qualities. And here's the point, right? This is something that's kind of lost on moderns today that, that kind of miffs me whenever I have discussions with um, uh, people on this topic of, of Trinity, of these topics of Trinity. It's often discussed as if this idea of deity is a modern version and description of deity, right? When we say that, well, the Father is God, but Jesus is not, is not God, or the Holy Spirit is not a separate person because, and then we, we, we hear this description of why Jesus can't be deity based on XYZ. But we fail to, to remember or take into account that the, the, the modern English word deity is rooted in the ancient definitions of deity. And so, when we start using this word deity, which is a Greek word that shows up here and there in, in certain places, that we, we would translate deity, but sometimes we would just translate it as God, um, then we need to give the ancient understanding, not the modern understanding. And the ancient understanding is, I'm kind of, kind of paraphrase, but the ancient understanding would be that deity is that which God uniquely possesses, a quality that God alone um has or um is able to perform right actions that are exclusive to god's nature or makeup or or you know what we would consider the definition of god it's kind of what we might, might today we would say they are signature actions or signature attributes thus if there were another being or person that came along and mimicked them and was able to replicate those actions or signature uh, deeds or had that signature quality, we would know that that being or that person is somehow God as well, without displacing our understanding of the original God. And so that's that's kind of the Hebraic mindset that goes into uh, the writing of of. Hebrew and Greek terminology that we would define as today's version of deity, and I, I have to bring this up because I was I know I'm watching um, uh, YouTube videos uh, in in my spare time when I'm not studying the Torah right or looking for a job, um, but I was watching these YouTube videos on um, the upcoming movie uh, Thor, uh, Thor: Love and Thunder, and um, so some of you know about this right Marvel movie. Thor is a comic book character, and Thor is considered a god. And in this movie, it's just taken for granted that there are all these god-like characters. And this is true of the MCU um, um, uh, concept anyway, right? If you've seen any of the other movies uh, that Marvel puts out, right? The Eternals and the Avengers and things like that. I mean, who hasn't seen the Avengers on planet Earth, right? In the 21st century. So, we have this idea of gods. But in the Marvel Universe... Anyone can be a god if you have a certain amount of powers, right? And there's kind of lesser gods and greater gods and powerful gods and OG gods, and right? The Eternals are a very high level of god, but then you've got these, these uh, really old gods, right? He who, who, who shall not be named is a god or whatever, and, um, you know, but then in Thor, Love, and Thunder, there's Zeus who shows up, and then you've got, you know, um, Gore, the god butcher, who's a kind of a god as well, and then, you know, so what's my point? <clears throat> my point is this. In the modern version of the word God or deity, there are numerous definitions depending on how much power you have and whatever abilities you possess, you can be a God. But that's the modern pop, psych, uh, pop um, uh, 
culture version of the word deity or God. But in the first century, that's not the way it worked. It was a very limited definition. It was more um, uh, uh, limited in its use. It, 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 the word deity or the word God there was used to describe a quality that was very signature to what the Hebrew, Hebrews understood as of God, the one who created everything, right? So if he said, who's the creator? We'd say God. Well, that's a signature action. Why did I bring all that up? Because when we said the Holy Spirit is everywhere, we say that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. This is a signature quality that only God can possess, right? Other beings or deities, right, were not known to possess this quality of being everywhere. They were localized, right? The gods of Olympus were were localized. They were always in one place, right? The gods of the ancient um, pagan systems of the day, you know, the ancient Greek gods, the ancient... Uh, Roman gods, the ancient Egyptian gods, and and uh, uh, you know ancient Canaanite gods and stuff—they're all fairly localized. So if you move to a different location, you encountered a different god. But in the case of the Hebrews, they understood that God is not local; He's everywhere at the same time. And yet He chose to demonstrate Himself in a localized fashion by concentrating His glory into the address of the tabernacle or the temple or something like that. But for the most part, that didn't diminish the fact that he was still enthroned in heaven. They didn't think that, oh, God moved from point A to point B because he can't be everywhere at the same time. But the Holy Spirit is like God. He has that quality. So that's why we have to look at that. Similar along that same vein, which is why I took the time to explain it, is that he's also all-knowing, right? He doesn't have any limits in his knowledge. And we're going to look at, oh, sorry, I didn't look at the uh, the passages. The fact that he's everywhere shows up in the book of Psalms, chapter 139. The fact that he's all-knowing shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And then um, it's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, according to 1 Peter. It's the Holy Spirit who's the life-giver, according to 2 Corinthians. It is the Holy Spirit that we have fellowship with, also in 2 Corinthians and in the book of Philippians. The Holy Spirit is eternal, according to the book of Romans 11 again, where we just looked at he who raised Jesus from the dead. Um, and the book, the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is eternal. These, again, are qualities and signatures that otherwise belong to God, the being known as God, or God the Father, if you want to give him that label in this personhood. But otherwise, when the Holy Spirit comes along and is described using these same qualities, it lets us know that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, very God. He's not a less-than-God, lesser being than God, or a lesser quality. And then we're going to begin to look at um, actions and attributes that define personhood, right? Um, all sorts of living beings and creatures exist on the earth today, right? Plants are living, animals live, humans live right but there are different attributes that allow us to bring in this adjective known as person right my dog isn't a well i don't have a dog but if i had one dogs aren't persons right dogs are animals what what um qualifies it to or disqualifies them from being a person right plants are a living thing but they're not persons and they're not animals either right so we have different classifications well the holy spirit is not a thing. His classification is person. How do we know this? Because this next um, few ones that we're going to be looking at, he has a will, right? Well, wait a minute. Dogs have wills too. Okay, dogs are animals. Are we saying the Holy Spirit is an animal? I hope you're not saying he's an animal. But the description that we're going to begin begin to make is that electricity has doesn't have a will. 
right? Plants, last time I checked, they might have a will, but how would, how would we know? Have they expressed it, right? Um, but definitely electricity, the force known as electricity that's driving this computer right now that I'm looking at, it doesn't have a will, not of its own. And if it does have a will of its own, can it express its will independent of what man um, manipulates? So the Holy Spirit, he has a will. And that's a personhood quality that we're going to read about in 1 Corinthians. The Holy Spirit, likewise, like people, like I'm doing right now, right? RL's a person, last time I checked. Human beings can speak. Why? Because we're persons. The Holy Spirit can speak as well. He's not an impersonal force like the Jehovah's Witnesses like uh, led, want us to believe or like some other um, uh, Unitarian Christian groups want us to believe. The Holy Spirit can speak. We're going to see this in the book of Acts. And then the Holy Spirit can love. Again, these are personhood qualities. In the book of Romans, we're going to look at the love of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit searches the heart. How can he do that? Unless he's a person, right? He's not an impersonal force or an object or a gift from God that's merely an object that's be passed from people to people, all right? Passed from father to his children. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we'll read about how he searches the heart. And then lastly in this list, which is obviously not exhaustive, the Holy Spirit gives joy, and we're going to read about that in the book of Romans. Again, these are personhood qualities that are only possible if the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a person, and we're going to read that. And this, I've said this over and over again, this is, I think, the weakness of the Unitarian position. There are times when the Bible describes, and we'll see this here in a moment, where the Bible describes the Holy Spirit, and it could be either way, because it's nuanced. Go either way, whether it's a Unitarian description or a Trinitarian description, whether it's a triadic description. And admittedly, um, sometimes we Trinitarians simply have to admit and concede that what we're reading is consistent with the Trinitarian reading, but does, is not exclusively triadic or Trinitarian. So, let me give you the example. Let's just jump right into it. In the book of Genesis, starting in verse 1 from the ESV, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Starting in verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we don't need to read, read verse 3, that's a different uh, lesson. But just look at the first two verses. Right? In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters, or the surface of the waters. If we scroll over to the Hebrew on the uh, other side of the page here, we can see that the Hebrew word for God is, let me highlight it for you, right there. This Hebrew word, Elohim. Elohim. And we've heard this before. It's a plural um, male noun or masculine noun in the Hebrew. But this word for Elohim is the same word that shows up in verse 2 when it says the Spirit of God. Let's highlight that part in the Hebrew. It says, Vruach Elohim. Right? This is broken up into three words. The first um, um, letter, V, is the consonant um, that deals with. Um, uh, 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 let's see. Um, let's see. And the heavens and 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 I'm sorry. It's the word. It's the conjunction and. I said constant. I mean uh, conjunction. Drawing a blank there. So it's the conjunction and the 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 uh, the, um, the vav there. And then the next word is ruach. R u a c h in the English. The ruach and spirit. And then the third word is Elohim, just like we saw earlier, Elohim. Okay, so we could say from a Unitarian perspective that the Spirit of God 
is simply another way of describing God who is a spirit. The spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters, or over the face of the waters, the panei chamaim, literally the face, face, face of the waters. Um, is this spirit a separate person? Unitarians would say no. It's the spirit of God. And using that definition of of example here, like, for instance, the spirit of Ariel, or the spirit of other living beings that we know to be in the earth today, no one imagines that the spirit of Ariel is a separate person or entity, separate and distinct from Ariel himself. In fact, to be sure, the last time I checked, and I'm the authority on this subject since it's me, the last time I checked, I can't send my spirit out of my body to do work for me and accomplish something for me that I, the body, could sit back and observe. Understand what I'm saying here? Understand my example? Person number one is the body of Ariel. Person number two is the spirit of Ariel. And, per, and the body sends the spirit to go do some task. Right? I'd love to be able to send my spirit to go wash the dishes every day. Then the body wouldn't have to do all that. Right? That would really be nice, but fortunately it doesn't work that way. But in the Unitarian model, it's not necessary because the spirit of God is God the spirit. That's the Unitarian understanding of this passage. However, the Trinitarian understanding says the Spirit of God is a separate spirit, a separate person from God who also is a spirit. So we have a spirit number, we have spirit A sending spirit B to do some work. What work is spirit B doing? He's hovering over the face of the waters and doing whatever he's going to do. But the point being is Moses didn't make this distinction. It's kind of nuanced discussion. He simply says the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. Who is this separate spirit? And is it necessarily that Moshe understood it to be a separate spirit? Well, he didn't elaborate. So that's why I mean by a little bit nuanced, a little bit of equivocation, a little bit of ambiguity here. Meaning the argument from the Unitarian side and the argument from the Trinitarian side can go either way. We need more context, and unfortunately Moshe didn't give us any more in this verse. We have to use other verses that supply um, more detail if we were to try and figure out if this is a triadic passage, a Trinitarian passage, you know, talking about the Holy Spirit, or if it's simply that God, who is a spirit, was himself hovering over the surface of water. But again, it begs the question, again, I'll, I'll leave off with this point without confusing you. At face value, the normative understanding of the passage is that God, in verse 1, the Elohim of verse 1, is sending the Ruach Elohim, verse 2, to do something for him. Right? Otherwise, Moses would have said, and the earth was unformed and void, and darkness was over the, over the surface of the deep, and God hovered over the surface of the waters. Right? We wouldn't have the Vuruch. If it's just God who is a spirit who's hovering over the surface of the waters, why did Moses write Vuruch Elohim? Why does it say in the spirit of God? In fact, to complicate the matters a little bit more, make it a little bit more challenging, the word of is supplied by translators in the spirit of God. It actually just says Vuruch Elohim and spirit God, almost as if it's a personal name, right? Spirit Elohim. Elohim created the heavens and the earth, but spirit Elohim hovered over the surface of the waters. As if we have two separate Elohims, 
or two separate persons of God. And the first person is known as Elohim, and the second person is known as Ruach Elohim, or third person in the Trinitarian uh, lineup. Okay, you guys understanding where I'm going with this? So, we're going to be doing things like this. We'll be looking at passages, and we'll be challenging ourselves by looking at some of the original languages. We won't do that for every single passage. Let's just take a look at the very first passage. Oh, by the way, I pulled up the, um, for my reference, I pulled up the, uh, the Greek of the first passage just to compare it against the Hebrew. Uh, and the Greek word is theos, uh, that shows up in verse 1 for Elohim. And then in verse 2, it's, um... Uh, pneuma theu, uh, the spirit of God or spirit God again. So, same thing, there's no uh disconnect between the Hebrew and the Greek. No, sometimes the Greek uses choices of words that are a little misleading or challenging from the Hebrew. Sometimes the words that are chosen again, uh, this is a translation, so. Although we can't say for certain that it was inspired by God, we can't say that it was rejected by the early Christians either, right? It was, in fact, used by them, so it really, it received that level of endorsement at least. But um, the point, or germane to our study, is that um, some of the wording is a little bit uh, odd at places. But here, no, nothing is particularly challenging, right? God is Theos or Theon or Theu or some derivative of that particular case and so it kind of just fits all right so nothing to really look at all right so instead let's go back to our table and let's look at this first one where the holy spirit is called god in acts 5 3 through 4 let's begin to work through this we've got about 10 minutes left in this part of the study i may only hit this verse uh this passage and, and then we'll just keep moving from there in acts 5 there's a story of ananias and sapphira you guys know the story and this particular story is a good place to start in our discussion about the Holy Spirit and whether or not he's a second or third person of the Trinity. Because in this particular account, Unitarians also claim this as one of their own to prove that the Spirit of God is simply God himself. And it's another stylistic way of describing God because it is already well known that God is a Spirit. So again, using their example, this is Unitarian logic, the Spirit of Ariel is Ariel. Right? There's no difference between the spirit of Ariel and Ariel. There's no separate persons going on, right? I'm, I, I don't have schizophrenia where I have multiple personality disorder or something like that. I'm one person, and my name is Ariel, and the spirit of Ariel is Ariel. No, no argument there, right? No um, ambiguity. But in the Bible, the Unitarians take that logic from the human example and they carry it over into biblical examples. So when we have Spirit of God, like we saw in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, then um, to them that's simply God himself. And look at this passage. Ananias and Sapphira are approached by Peter and they're told to sell a piece of land and bring the proceeds to the apostle. And they do that, but then look what happens. In verse 3, um, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? We pull up the Greek just briefly. I don't need to read all of that, but the part that um, is translated into English as Holy Spirit is right. Oops, try that one more time. Is right there. Numa Tahagion, Numa Tahagion, Spirit the Holy, 
right? Something to that effect. Spirit, the Holy, or the Holy Spirit, if we um, clean up the syntax, the word order, and put it back into the way we hear it in English. Spirit, the Holy, or the Holy Spirit. Spirit, the one who is holy. So, uh, the Unitarian's going to say, yeah, Peter calls um, the person that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, it's brought out that Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to... And Luke could have written the Holy Spirit, and there would be no discussion. But instead, Luke wrote, you have not lied to man, but to God. And if we look at the Greek, there's no pneuma to hagiu or hagion or anything like that. Instead, the uh, Greek simply says that you have lied to... I laid it for you. You have lied to theo. Theo, which is similar to our uh, Greek word theos or theon, depending on which case you're talking about, which usage, uh, which which um, way uh, the um, Greek needs to form its its endings, case endings change based on um, what part uh, in the sentence it's playing, um, subject object, uh, things like that. So, but it's the same root word theos or something like that. Uh, most people say theos or Theo or something like that. So this is what we have. So you've not lied to the to man, but to Theon or Theos or Theo to God. All right. The argument goes like this: In Unitarian circles, they simply say, "Look, this is proof that the Holy Spirit is simply God," because Peter doesn't say you've lied to the third person of the Trinity. He simply says you've lied to God. And in the Unitarian model, the Holy Spirit is God. Not a second person of the or third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is simply the one being known as God who has an individual personality, or I'm sorry, an individual identity, right? He, he's only one God and he's not made up of three separate pieces. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is God. And the proof, Unitarians would say, is that Peter says that you lied to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. But watch this the Trinitarian argument is equally strong. Right? Trinitarians come along like me. I'm a Trinitarian. And I come along and say, this is simply proof that the Holy Spirit is full deity. I'm taking the word theos, there is deity, not necessarily that he's the Father God. In other words, I'm inserting the, the, the information that I've gained from other parts of the Bible that give me the understanding that God is a complex unity who has revealed himself in three persons, and one of those persons is the person of the holy spirit and yet at the same time this person possesses the signature attributes and qualities of what i describe as full deity or godhood the holy spirit is fully god he's not a diminished version of god a cheapened lessened um uh cheap knockoff quality version of God or something like that, right? He's not an imitation God. He's not a lesser God. He's not a mini-God, you know, like like Austin Powers, the mini-me, or something like that. So, uh, in closing, uh, it, for this particular passage, for this uh, study tonight, let me drop down to verse 9 that Carm didn't uh, bring into our study, but I will bring it in because I think it's relevant as well. In verse 9, Peter says, or Luke writes, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
Now Peter introduces another phrase. He doesn't say Spirit of God, right? Pneumatohagion. He didn't say that. He didn't say Theu. What does he say in the Greek? Let's turn over and look at it, right? The Spirit of the Lord. Here, this time, he says, and I'll highlight it for you. Highlight's not working. Try that again. There we go. He says, Topnumakuriu. Topnumakuriu. Translated woodenly from the Greek, the Spirit of the Lord, or the Spirit Lord, or the Lord Spirit. So now we have a, a, a third Greek term. First, we had Pneumata um, uh, Hagion, right? Spirit of Holy, or the Holy Spirit. Then we had that you lied to God, or Theon, or Theo. Now we have Ta Kurio, the Spirit of the Lord, or the Lord's Spirit. Something to that effect, right? And so, this is again a little bit equivocal because the word kurion or kurios or kuriud, again, changes cases, but it's the same root word. If you look it up in your strongs, it's going to be the same root strong number. And I'm closing with this. Um, this is where it gets kind of a bit equivocal. From a Trinitarian perspective, we recognize that the word kurios by the first century was the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew YHVH, the tetragrammaton name for Elohim or God. So in the Old Testament, if you're reading through the Old Testament in Hebrew and you encounter the YHVH tetragrammaton name of God, which you first encounter it in Genesis chapter 2, then you look up the Hebrew and it's again Yod Hey Vav Hey or YHVH, pronounced Yahweh sometimes, pronounced Jehovah, something to that effect. I, I favor Yahweh myself um, or just Hashem. And this Hebrew word, right, Yahweh, gets translated into Greek as kurios, or some people say kurios, right, kurios, A-U-R-I-O-S, that's the root Greek word. Well, this word had become so popular in Christian circles in the first century, and, and Christian uh, Jews, to be applied to Yeshua, that it now became simply regular to say um, greetings from God the Father and the Kurias Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Kurias Jesus Christos, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. This word now became um, the favorite title applied to Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord. And yet, uh, uh, he, uh, a religious Jew still wouldn't have lost the application of Kurias is the Greek equivalent of Yodhevavhe. So what does it mean when Peter says, how is it that you've agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord? Does he mean the Lord Yeshua? Does he mean the Lord God, Father? The Lord, Father, God? Right? The Trinitarian argument says, ah, could be either. Could be the Lord God, as in Father God, or could be the Lord Yeshua. Because we understand from a Trinitarian perspective that there's one God, three persons. And this is nicely represented for us by the first Verse in verse 3 using Holy Spirit, that's third person of the Trinity. Verse 4 gives us simply the word God, that's first person of the Trinity, God the Father. And then verse 9 now has Spirit of the Lord, that's second person of the Trinity, making this whole account a triadic account, triadic meaning Trinitarian uh, count. But the Unitarian's going to come along and say, no, 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 no Trinity here, the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of God the Father, because the word Lord is applied 6,000 plus times in the Old Testament for 
God, right? Kudios. But again, ignoring the fact that in the New Testament, the word kudios had already been co-opted by the uh, first century Christians, Jew and Gentile alike, to uh, apply to the Lord Yeshua in distinction to, 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 to draw the distinction between Father and Son in this mysterious um, Trinitarian uh, understanding of who God is. But we'll pick this up uh, next week where we continue working through uh, some of these passages that we find in our table here. Let me just bring up the table for you one more time. The Holy Spirit is called God. What does it mean that he's called God? Does it mean he's called deity? Does it mean the Holy Spirit is called the Father? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is called the Son. So the word God here is almost like a title. I understand that. I've heard um, Unitarians argue that the word God is a title, the word Theos is a title. Um, there's a little bit of truth to that. I can I can kind of run with a little bit of that, but not to its full conclusion, uh, full a full logical conclusion. But if we say that the word God is an attribute that's reserved um, uniquely for the being that the Hebrews worship, the monotheistic being known as God, then to call the Holy Spirit God means that we're giving him that signature attribute and quality that's only found in God the being or God the Father, then yes, then we can say that it's a kind of a, a title in that sense. Um, but otherwise, he's called God, but he's not called the Father. And that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the um, liturgy real quick. I'll just be short and to the point. I'll read um, uh, uh, one verse. Uh, I was going to read two, but I'll just read one, and then tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, next week we'll read uh, uh, two verses, and then the week after that we'll read all four. Isaiah 2, verse 3. Remember, uh, two weeks ago we read 1 and 2. Uh, so we're reading about this promise that of future Israel that one day uh, leading up to this idea that um, Israel will be brought into prominence once again. God's going to establish his kingdom here on earth in in uh, Jerusalem. And eventually we're going to read how the Torah is going to go forth and minister not just to Israel, but to the surrounding nations. It's that whole eschatological view of Israel that we talked about in Romans study, uh, particularly Romans chapter 15. Go back and listen to the study if you missed it. But Isaiah says uh, in the English, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Who? Many peoples, not just Jews. In the end times, many peoples shall come and say. So this fits right in again with the Amenorite promises, right in again with the Shema theology. God is the one God of Israel and of the many peoples, the nations, the Amim Rabim, we're going to see in the Hebrew. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to where? Let's go to, to Salt Lake City. Let's go to, to, to the Vatican Square. No, no, no. That's not where they're going to go. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the mountain of the Lord. They're going to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because God's concentrated presence is there in the midst of the people of Israel. The people from the nations are going to gather there. Let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Right? Keep in mind that it's the nations being brought into proximity to worship God in the midst of Israel, not separated from Israel. We don't have this, this bilateral ecclesiology where we got Jews over on one side and Gentiles over the other side, and they're separated, but they're both worshiping God somehow. No, that's not how Paul sees it. That's not how the prophets see it. Eventually, we become one big family of God. Let's go to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. What ways do you think he's talking about? I think he's talking about the Torah, but we'll have to wait till next week to read it in verse 4. That he may teach us his ways, and that may we walk in his paths. No, we're going to read about it now. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So yeah, we're going to read it right now. We don't have to wait till next week to read it. Let's read it right now. 
So we see that this is a future passage where far from envisioning that the Torah has been done away with by the death of Messiah, um, sounds like the Torah is still relevant to not only to God's people, but to the um, surrounding people groups who are coming into proximity to God and to God's people here in Jerusalem that day. Let's read the Hebrew over on the uh, uh, right side of the page over here. The Hebrew says, "Vahalhu amim rabim." The amim rabim is the many peoples. Vahalhu amim rabim. Vaamru lahu vnaale el har Adonai el Beit Elohei Yaakov. Vyorenu midrachayv vnelcha baorchotayv. Why? Ki. Let's walk in this past. Why? Ki. Because. Ki mitzion teitzei Torah, the, the the Torah shall go forth. U devar and the word Adonai mit Yerushalayim, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This, by the way, is where I get the name of my ministry, the um, teitzei Torah, right here. Teitzei Torah is the name of my ministry, and it's taken directly from this verse out of Isaiah chapter two, verse three. The Torah shall go forth from Jerusalem, and then we have poetically speaking, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the law shall go forth from Zion. Uh, what's the law? It's the word of the Lord. What's the word of the Lord? It's the law. So the parallelism is the Devar Adonai is the uh, the, the, the uh, Torah itself. So the same thing. So that'll do it for our liturgy from the um, uh, Hebrew. Uh, let's turn to the Greek. Uh, we've looked at this in the past. We'll keep working on through this. Galatians chapter 2. Uh, challenging passages for those who for those who think that um, the law has been done away with, how can um, Paul say the law has been done away with? But at the same time, how do we fit in the idea that the law is still relevant when Paul says that it's something that we can't be attain salvation by? Jumping, dropping down to Galatians two, we read uh, verse. Um, I think we read fifteen and sixteen two weeks ago. So let's read. Let's read um, uh, two verses tonight: seventeen and eighteen. In English it says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, and is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. In verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul is speaking to largely to Gentiles who were entertaining the idea of joining national Israel at the ethnic level, at the legal Jewish status level, which would clear up any confusion that the Torah is for Jews or for Gentiles. In Paul's day, uh, national Israel believed that the Torah was for Jews only, and therefore if Gentiles wanted to join the people group of God, they had to convert and become Jews, legally speaking. But Paul sees this as a stumbling block to the gospel because it, it forces a Gentile to place his faith in his ethnicity and his legal status and his belonging to a people group rather than placing his faith in Messiah. And so Paul sees this as a, a, a counterfeit gospel. It's works righteousness. It's legalism to place your trust in your ethnicity. He certainly wasn't accusing Israel of placing their trust in their Torah obedience, like the church levels that charge against Israel today. What he was um, um, chastising national Israel for was the blindness caused by their ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. He wasn't really chastising them for their um, loyalty to Torah. Just their misguided use of uh, uh, Jewish identity, which led to following the Torah. So let's read the Greek over on the uh, right side of the page. Um, the Greek says, A de zetuntes de kaiothenai in Christo uethemen, kai autoi hamartoloi ara Christos hamartias diakanas 
me genoita. And verse 18 says, Agar ha katalusa tauta palen oika damo para batin hiautan sunestanu. And that'll be the Greek for tonight. Let's turn real quick to the short little video. We'll watch the video, and then after the video is over, we'll simply close in prayer. Okay? You ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. As I mentioned, they provide the questions and I provide the answers. So let's look at our question for tonight. The question is, why did God choose Israel to be his chosen people? All right. Before I get started with tonight's study, I just want to make you aware of some links and some other videos that you're going to find helpful. I have a, a video called What Does the Bible Mean When It Refers to a Remnant that there's a link to on the screen right now, upper right corner. Click that link to watch my teaching on the remnant. It will also help you identify with this particular study. And there's another video that I've uploaded to YouTube called Are Israel and the Church the Same Thing? Does God Still Have a Plan for Israel? Again, the link is in the upper right corner of the video that you're watching right now. Click that link and watch that video. There's a humorous saying that goes, how odd of God to choose the Jews. The complexity of one's answer to this seemingly simple question depends on their definition of who they believe Israel to be. The entity known as chosen Israel is a complex biblical concept portrayed in the Bible as existing on at least two levels per Romans 9, 6 through 8. And therefore, the question as to why God chose them deserves a detailed, hopefully not confusing answer. In contemplating the magnitude of the mystery of why God chose Israel as his representatives, we affirm that despite Israel's ups and downs, her position as God's chosen reveals the perfect plans of the Father for all to behold. Go back and read Romans 11:33 through 36 and you'll see this. Thus, despite Israel's imperfections in the end, the Bible promises that all Israel will be saved, quote unquote. That's per Romans 11:25 through 27. I don't know exactly what that means or what that entails, but that's what God says. So, two levels of Israel. In order to understand the successes, failures, and responsibilities commensurate with being chosen according to God's good pleasure, per Philippians 2.13, one needs to understand that chosen Israel exists on two levels. All right, what are these two levels? National Israel and remnant Israel. And we've got Gentile Christians as wild olive branches being grafted not into national Israel per se, but into remnant Israel alongside the Messianic Jews. Go back and read Romans 11, 17 through 24. So I think this is going to go a long way towards helping us understand this question. Let me describe this picture that you're seeing. We've got a big blue circle on the left called National Israel. We've got a red circle on the right called Gentile Nations. And when we overlap them, there's a slice in the middle that's called remnant Israel that is known as the church. For Paul, the ecclesia, the church, existed within Israel, not outside of Israel. All right, that's our background. Let's look at Paul's olive tree. Remnant Israel and national Israel both exist on one single olive tree, and they're both nourished by the roots of the patriarchs per Romans 11, 17, and 18. So we've got national Israel, and we've got remnant Israel 
being a smaller part of national Israel, and it's faith in Yeshua that grafts you in if you're a national, someone from the Gentiles. God doesn't have two brides, people. God has not rejected his bride, national Israel. Read Romans 11. He is able to graft unsaved branches back in if they do not persist in unbelief. Read Romans 11, 23 and 24. So let's look at these two levels a little more closely. The bride of God is national Israel. Chosen national Israel is unsaved Israel. They're the bride, but they're unsaved. Their covenant membership slash righteousness is rooted in law ethnicity, and it's limited and temporal, unfortunately. Their covenant membership is limited and temporal. I've got a lot of verses from Romans that you need to look up here. Uh, Chosen national unsaved Israel is circumcised in flesh only per Romans and Galatians. So go back and look up all these verses so that you can understand the scope of chosen national yet unfortunately unsaved Israel. These bullet points are going to match one another. If you There's about nine bullet points for each uh, level of Israel. Let's keep looking at chosen national unsaved Israel. They are children of the flesh. They uh, are stem from Mount Sinai and earthly Jerusalem per Galatians chapter 4. Their Torah observance is done by the flesh and it receives praise from men per Romans and Matthew and some other passages. And unfortunately, they are under bondage slash condemnation, ultimately, ultimately. Not not maybe like uh, in the immediate scope, but ultimately they are. And then lastly, chosen national unsaved Israel, their priesthood is rooted in Aaron per Exodus Hebrew, per Exodus and Hebrews, and they receive temporal atonement and ritual purification of the flesh only per the book of Leviticus as well as the book of Hebrews. So these are some of the um, characteristics of chosen unsaved national Israel. Now let's look at chosen remnant saved Israel. Same bullet points, just looking at their perspective. They are the bride of Christ per 2 Corinthians and Revelation. They have covenant membership slash righteousness that's rooted in faith and it's genuine and lasting, right? It carries on into the world to come. Lots of verses to look up there. Also, their circumcision is in the flesh and in heart, right? It's both. It's in the flesh and in the heart, particularly if you are a natural born Israelite. It's of the flesh as well. Look at their... um, their status as children, it's their children of the promise as opposed to children of the flesh, per Romans. They have a heavenly Jerusalem that they have inherited, per Galatians chapter 4. And their following of God's commandments is done by the Spirit and receives praise from God, per Romans. Also, they are no longer under bondage or condemnation. Again, look up Romans and Galatians. Their priesthood is rooted in Melchizedek or slash Yeshua for the book of Hebrews. And then they receive lasting atonement and spiritual purification of the conscience, again, per the book of Hebrews. So that's remnant spiritual Israel. What are the conclusions that we can make from looking at these details? Two levels of Israel, national and remnant. If we combine what we just listed about national Israel and remnant Israel, we can outline these brief points about God's choosing of Israel and exactly why he chose them. Here they are, bullet points. They were chosen to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, per Exodus and 1 Peter. They were chosen to showcase God's nearness to his people and his righteous Torah to the world. Read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5 through 9. And they were chosen to safeguard the oracles of God. Read Romans chapter 3, verse 2. They were chosen to be his firstborn son, Exodus 4, 22. They were chosen to be his bride. Read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They were chosen to bring the Messiah into the world. Read Matthew and Galatians. And they were chosen because he first loved her. Read Deuteronomy 
and the Ephesians as well. So lots of scriptural reasons that we could figure out as to why God chose Israel. So let's look at that slide one more time. Paul's olive tree theology. Remnant and national Israel both exist on one olive tree and they're both nourished by the roots of the patriarchs. That's Romans 11, 17 through 18. There's a big uh, part of the top of the tree where the branches exist that's largely given over to national Israel. And there's a smaller circle that's purple that represents remnant Israel. They're still on the same tree, right? And you get grafted in by faith in Messiah. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. I bless your name and thank you for uh, this opportunity to share my thoughts with the students and to engage in the interaction with those uh, people from around the world who join me week after week during these live internet studies. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with your word, for making it readily available to us, for sending your Holy Spirit to explain it to us, and for allowing us to fellowship with one another as we study together week after week. Continue to protect us and strengthen us and raise us up and give us a voice of witness as we take the gospel message around the world. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen.